This episode of 1801 Live was originally recorded during a 12-hour podcast-a-thon streamed live on August 28th from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. The Give Black Podcast-a-thon benefited U of SC's One Creed, One Carolina campaign, which supports initiatives that elevate and encourage black students, faculty, and staff. Together, our five hosts and over 20 guests helped raise more than $10,000 for the campaign over 12 hours. Find more information on the podcast-a-thon and the link to donate at www.garnetmedia.org slash giveblack. generation where technology baffles me often. <laughs> you are fine. You're in the line. We can see you. We can hear you. And that is all that matters. Thank you for waking up so early to talk to us. Oh, I'm up. It's all good. <laughs> so before we get started, I know you, you know a lot about a lot, but just so the audience knows, if you can give a brief background. Personally, I know you as my favorite, one of my favorite uh, AFAM professors. So you were the one that inspired me to get a minor in African-American studies. And I know we talked about that for a while, but just do a brief introduction before we get into it. Okay, I will do that. So you ready now? Yes. Okay, I'm Val Littlefield. I am an associate professor of history at the University of South Carolina. This is my 20th year or maybe better, I'm working on my 21st year. And I was at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign before coming here. That's where I got my PhD. I uh, got my undergraduate degree from North Carolina Central University. And Durham is home. And South Carolina is the second home. So this, uh, and teaching, I absolutely love teaching. So you've been here for over 20 years. And I just want to know a little bit about your experience of being here. What brought you? to the University of South Carolina, and then what keeps you here? All right. So what brought me here was a gentleman by the name of Walter Edgar. Uh, He was on the search committee for the history department, and they were uh, looking for a, a historian. And I was finishing up a PhD at Illinois. I had no intentions of moving up, leaving Illinois. There was a job waiting for me once I finished the PhD. But this was home, and I saw it as an opportunity to get closer to home, did some research on the university. Uh, My husband is also a historian, and so we were a package deal. And so the year we were hired, there were three of us, uh, my husband, Dan Littlefield, myself, and Dr. Bobby Donaldson. So that's how I ended up here. So what keeps me here? People, I've made, the minute I got here, it felt like home. I must admit, uh, my colleagues were absolutely wonderful. Many of them have retired, but just absolutely wonderful to work with, very nurturing. The other thing that worked really well, community members. I was immediately introduced to community members, and I have friends still, and and I'm still very active in the community. That made the difference, because I am a community-oriented person, and so being able to work with community leaders and community members made all the difference. So that's why I stay. 
And I know that you, um, like many of our professors, teaching is just one small aspect of all the things you do and contribute, not only to the university, but just to make an impact within the outer community or external community mm -hmm. in the world. But um, specifically within the university, currently I know like you're co-chair of the uh, Presidential Commission on University History, but I was wondering um, if you could talk about that role as well as I know there's probably many more roles that you've had within the university um, in addition to being a professor. That is so very true. Uh, most people think, you know, you can do your work and you get the summer off and all of that. That, that is not true. Uh, that is not anybody <laughs> who's an educator. If they think they have their summer off there, they're delusional. So one of the things that I've always been active in is university uh, trying to make sure that the university reaches out, trying to make sure that I am a part of the, of the larger university. And one way of doing that, I've served on several, lots and lots of committees, shall I say, uh, the desegregation commemoration, the 63 uh, commemoration. I co-chaired that with Dr. Lacey Ford. And that was a two-year uh, event. We had events for two years. We planned for a, um, a year and then we had events for a year. And, and so it was, it was so fulfilling and we reached so many people uh, and we brought back uh, two of the people, one had died, Anderson had died. So those are the kinds of things that professors do other than teach. Uh, the other thing is I've worked with Georgetown in South Carolina doing oral interviews uh, with Gullah Geechee people. Uh, I've done interviews with black and white. We did black and white women in Georgetown talking about their experiences. That was awesome. Um, and then what we did with them was at the Strand Theater, if anybody knows about the Strand Theater in Georgetown for our Georgetown students, every uh, once a month on Friday night, we showed the videotapes of the interviews we had done. And we brought in a historian who talked about whatever the theme was. It could be race, it could be holidays, it could be uh, World War II, World War, you know, whatever, careers, we never had less than 90 people at those uh, filming and those talks. And so those are the kinds of things that I've been, been involved in as well um, with the university. So it takes me out of Columbia. Uh, I've worked with school teachers. I taught in uh, Florence for five years with Teach America History grants. And that was because teachers from the State Department of Ed called and said, look, we really need somebody who can reach teachers and you're it. And so I did that for five years. So that meant in evening times, I was driving to Florence to teach teachers. And in the summer, I was driving back and forth from Florence to teach teachers. Uh, you know, that brought in some money to the university. Again, thinking about how to help the university, but also how to, how to help the, the larger communities such as state teachers. Uh, and so I have lifelong friendships. I still work with, with school teachers, uh, K through 12. So those are the kinds of things that, that you do other than teach. <laughs> in a nutshell. So yeah, we keep busy, I must admit. And some busier than others, you know, community outreach isn't for everybody. Um, but, the, but a lot of faculty at USC are heavily involved in the community. Was there a second part to, your, to yours that I didn't answer? No, I was going to, I now have follow-ups from all of the projects that you have led, specifically the desegregation commission. So I know Dr. Treadwell is coming on later as one of the three students who desegregated the university, but 
could you talk a little bit about the event? You said two-year-long span? Yes, yes. <laughs> Tongues oh were rattling after those two years. The other thing about that particular uh, project was that everybody, every department, I, I would say 90% of the departments at the University of South Carolina were involved in this. And so the ending finale, I'll just deal, I'll, I'll deal with others, but the ending finale was uh, the School of Music. So they wrote a score for, for, the, um, for the ending, but we all, and we held it at the Cobra Center, but we also had um, dance. So Thaddeus Davis and Tanya Wade, Tanya Wade, Thaddeus and Tanya Wade Davis performed, and up on the screen were images, uh, civil rights images, images during the time. It was just phenomenal, and we opened it up uh, in the middle of. Well, let me go back to the middle. In the middle of it, we had the the desegregation garden. So. We had the ribbon cutting for that, but again, that was raising money from the community, but also from corporations. So we raised money for the desegregation garden, the uh, landscape staffing, awesome. Derek Gruner and his staff, they just, I mean, they just went all out. Um, and so the bricklaying, we just totally tore up that section and redid it. So then we had uh, Mr. Pearl who did the topiary, we had Nikki Finney, who did the poetry, which, which, is, which you'll see there. So everybody came together and, and made this happen. Student government was involved, alumni involved. It really was um, Black alumni. I talked to them daily about different things. So it, it, was, it was a very cooperative arrangement, shall I say, not without its craziness because that happens with anything but it was one of the most rewarding experiences I've had. I also set up a group of students who did like 10 minute interviews with black alum. So we have those records. Um, we had a group of students who also did a symposium on Illinois, I mean on Illinois, I'm going back to my other university, but they, we did a one day symposium. Uh, I wanna say it was eight or nine students and they were undergrad and graduate students. Who had done who had spent a semester doing research on blacks on campus and they are now uh editing a book they're now putting together a book on that on that research everything from slavery on campus uh to the treadwell and them who were here in the 60s so they just they just did some really interesting research uh so i'm looking forward to that book and usc press will be the publisher of that so that's coming pretty soon they are they're at that stage where they're wrapping it up so these are students who have gone off to become lawyers and professors and they're still connected and for the most part black students but there there are other students in there as well but they've remained connected and and they're writing a book about that experience so something came out of that as well uh tangible so that's all i'll still about that that is it was really great Yes, no, that is amazing. And I cannot wait to read this book because I know that it's going to have some, a lot of knowledge about our history. And so yes. very excited. And I also love that USC Press is going to be the publisher of the book. So it's just full circle of from students to University Press um, yes. publishing it. So that is amazing. Yes. But I also know that you 
um, are very knowledgeable about women's suffrage, and then um, especially within South Carolina, you just did a presentation earlier in August of on stories, but I just wanted you to talk a little bit about that and um, the project that you have been working on. So well, I know that you also were a part of creating a book all about um, women's suffrage and women in South Carolina. So if you could talk a little bit about that, you know, that's really cool. Sure. So the, the, there's a three volume book uh, called South Carolina Women, Their Lives and Times. And the co-editors, uh, Marjorie Sproul Wheeler and Joan Johnson, and I uh, worked together on that one for three years, three plus years on that one. We had plant. we worked with the University of Georgia Press because they were, they had a market for it, but they had also worked with other states on their books on women. Uh, they later, North Carolina women had one, but Georgia was one of the earlier ones, Alabama. So they had hit all the many states in dealing with women's history. And so we felt that they were a good fit and, and it has been a very good fit. So we are the only state that has three volumes. Uh, all the other states have two volumes. We kept getting, uh, you know, we did a search of names who might, who should we include in this book uh, and then started prioritizing. But from reaching out to librarians, to uh, lay historians, to historians, to everyone that we could possibly reach out to, we ended up with three volumes and we could have ended up with three more volumes. It was a labor of love, but it was absolutely wonderful. Uh, we, we started at the beginning of South Carolina uh, to the present. We ended with the uh, Chief Supreme Court, uh, Gene Toll. So there's some chapters, some, and what I like about these volumes, you can read a chapter on a woman or women. Uh, sometimes we use the family, sometimes we use several women. So you can read a chapter, put it down, pick it up and read another chapter. And one of my students yesterday, as a matter of fact, just said that her professor had assigned her the first, the class, the first volume, and that she bought it before she came, moved here. No, I can't remember where she's from, but she bought it before she moved to South Carolina and her mother started reading it. And so her mother informed her that she had to, for a Christmas present, she wanted the other two volumes. So it is just packed with information on South Carolina women that people don't necessarily think about. Uh, I'll give you an example. One is on Pitchfork Ben Tillman's daughter, daughter-in-law, who is married to uh, Ben Jr. And Ben Jr. has a drinking problem. And the marriage, she had money. Marriage ends. She moves up north. She moves to New York, if my memory serves me correctly. And they have two daughters. And so Tillman, go, Tillman and his mother go see her, Ben Jr. and his mother go see her. She's sick. They bring the daughters back to South Carolina. And Ben wills his daughters to his father and mother while she's sick. Yes, you could do that in the, 19, in the early 1900s. Okay. So one of the things that comes out of this, she gets well, thank goodness comes back to South Carolina and sues, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court, South Carolina Supreme Court, and she wins her daughters back. But it's, you know, it's a nasty fight. And so, uh, this, so this particular article deals with that aspect, but also the impact that it had on the suffrage movement, because many women saw that as if a mother's children can be deeded without her knowledge, without her permit, basically without her permission, 
and she has to go to court. Well, what about poor women? What about other women? She had the, you know, she had the means to fight this, but a lot of women wouldn't have the means to fight this. And so uh, several women said that one of the things that got them involved in the suffrage movement in the early 1900s was that court case. So these are the kinds of stories that, 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 you, will, that you will get, but not only with uh, women with means, but also uh, women who didn't have anything. We, we, talk, we talk about every career we could think of, every class we could possibly think of. So it's, it's a, it's a well-balanced, the volumes are well-balanced. And for the Rollins sisters, I started looking at them because ETV is doing a documentary and Burl Dakers had asked me to, to talk about black women suffragists. And so I started looking at black women suffragists and I wanted to know what was happening in South Carolina doing, I, I'm fascinated. Reconstruction is my favorite period. Well, I have lots of favorite periods, but it's one of my favorite periods to teach because it, you know, there's, there's so many things happening, so many good things happening during that time period. There's also so many bad things. There's violence, there's intimidation, all of that is going on. But there are also so many possibilities and you can see so many things working during that particular time period. And so the Rollins sisters, their story is one of those things that's working. So when you think about suffrage in South Carolina, it starts in the Reconstruction period and it starts with the Rollins sisters. Uh, Charlotte Rollins is one of the main ones, but you have Francis, the, uh, the, uh, the oldest ones, and you have Catherine, uh, the three oldest sisters. There are five of them. So the three oldest sisters are very, very involved in the suffrage movement. So they are the ones who get the first uh, suffrage um, they're the ones who, who start the suffrage movement in South Carolina and Lucy Stone sends them the first charter. So they apply for a charter, they get the, they, they get the first charter in South Carolina. And we often jump to the 1880s, the 1890s with Young. If you just Google, Rollins sisters rarely pop up as starting the suffrage movement in South Carolina. We started with the 1880s, 1890s. And so I, I wanted to work with that, those sins of omission, shall I say, uh, to, to get the facts straight and to talk about the role of these women. The other thing that comes out of looking at the Rollins sisters is the kind of cooperative arrangement or, or movement that was going on during that particular time period. You had males, you don't see males, but lots of males when you start looking at the suffrage movement, you mainly see the women. But when you look at the, the Rollins story, you see black males, you see white males, you, you see lieutenant governors, you see the governor, you see wives, you, you see, now again, middle class, but you see all these groups coming together working for the suffrage movement. And afterwards, that, that separates, you don't see that. Uh, one of the things that I talk about is you see that that racial tension just cementing. And so it divides and you have suffrage going on, on parallel tracks and, and black women being excluded. But you do not have that in South Carolina during Reconstruction. And that I love. I, I think that's a story that needs to be told of how it, if they had just stuck with it, how it could have been done. And the what ifs, you know. <laughs> Thank you for sharing all of that, Dr. Littlefield. This is our first interaction. It's lovely to meet you and, and hear so much of the wisdom that you've shared in your story so far. Um, I kind of have a more, I guess, broad scope question that I'm just interested to pick your brain on. Um, obviously, it's a conversation that I think, you know, 
academics and educators have been having for a while, but the necessity of African-American studies to the education system is, is um, you know, very, very hard to, to miss. There's so much of our history that honestly, it, our history is African-American history. American history is African-American. Mm -hmm. so yes. I kind of wanted to hear your take on the importance of having AFAM classes available you know, whether it's K through 12, whether it's in a higher education system, and then where you think we as a country should go forward in continuing to, um, you know, tap into this history and, and, and educate people on our history. It's a great question. When I think about African American studies classes, um, one of the most important aspects of an FM class is this interdisciplinary. And as you just said, it is American history. And so you can't teach African-American history in a silo. You, you're teaching, you, you can teach other history in a you can teach other history. I would argue you shouldn't, but I know it's done, okay? <laughs> but the bottom line is when you're teaching African-American history, students come away with a much more well-rounded understanding of history, I would argue. Number one, because it is interdisciplinary, you understand how music interacts, how, music, how society issues impact music, how music impact society, poetry, how it impacts. So you can take a, a time period. I can pull up a poem, I can pull up lyrics, and I can help students understand what's going on just by using those documents. And so for me, it's reaching people with different through different avenues that makes it so interesting and so exciting because it is interdisciplinary. And so I think FAM courses just offer something that I, I'm not sure other courses, I'm being biased, but I'm not sure other courses can offer because it is interdisciplinary. It is. Uh, it is so far reaching. It, it is a history that we often don't include when, when we're talking. It's like a sidebar or something. If you're, teach, if you're teaching an American history class, well, you know, African-Americans were doing this and they were doing that. And we never make those connections. And that's extremely important. And that's what happens in an FM class. The connections are made. So students can look at a much larger picture. They can argue about something much more from a critical standpoint as opposed to this one view of how something happened. And I often tell my students that, you know, there's an old African proverb about, and we will not know the story of the hunt until we hear the lion's story. And so we often just get the hunter's story. And that is one side of it. What's the lion's story? So until you get that African-American story, you don't get American history. I'm not sure what you're getting, but it's not American history. So those, that's why it is important. And it is important for students to be able to understand some of the issues that we're dealing with now, many of the issues we're dealing with now. They are long-term issues. They didn't just crop up. Uh, they have roots. And understanding those roots and talking about them and dealing with them makes us come to the table with a much better understanding of strategies of how to move to another, another plane. So that's the importance of African-American history. Um, how can we make sure that more of this is taught? I, I think part of it is 
to make sure that we hold the schools, the K through 12 schools, that they get the resources that they need in order to be able to include uh, people, not just African-American history, but other histories as well, that they include different histories. But the other thing is, I think we as a community can also do much better with this. Uh, I, you know, we've got mega churches on every corner. We've got small churches on every corner and they have captive audiences, shall I say. And I think here is where we often lose the opportunity of making sure that our youth and our young adults and our adults get the, get the knowledge that they need. These churches have lots of educators in them. So tap into those educators. The ones in Columbia are sitting at three universities. So tap into those professors, invite them in to give many conversations about, his, about African-American history. You got the time, so use it. Uh, figure out ways to do it. Start programs that will allow students, especially K through 12 students, access to African-American history. Bring in educators have evening programs. We can do that. We've got students at the University of South Carolina who would be willing to do that. So those are the kinds of things I think that, that we could do more of, that, that maybe we're not tapping into low-hanging fruit, shall I say. But also purchasing books that, of, of, you know, children's books about African-American history. That is extremely important. But not only, you know, everybody doesn't have money to purchase books. They're expensive. Libraries, we got a big one downtown, Columbia. So they're huge, there are libraries everywhere. Take them out, check them out, you know, make sure that your kids are reading things that they can now use to build a foundation to understand their ancestors' role in the building of America and the building of the world. I love it. And then I think that with all of your knowledge and your years of dedication towards the university, working um, in collaboration in order uh, with the university as well as in order to improve what is the place that we love to call home. How impactful do you think or important it is for us to continue the initiatives like the ones that have been created in the past, whether it's the Presidential Commission on University History or even the reason why we're here today to raise money for the One Creed, One Carolina campaign that helps programs that amplify black students voices yeah i think it's extremely important and I, I applaud you for doing this and i will be giving shortly afterwards uh i think it's extremely important for the university like the the commission the history the commission on, on the history the presidential commission on history that's extremely important because it allows us to now start looking at groups who have been left out of the history at University of South Carolina. It also allows us to wrestle with some, uh, you know, some painful names that we're dealing with. And we have to hear from all sides. Um, we, we have to look at pros and cons and, and, and possibilities. All of that has to be dealt with. And that's part of what the role of the commission. And so I'm looking forward to that in many ways. In other ways, I'm, you know, my head's going down, going, oh, goodness, what have I gotten myself into? But that's beside the point. Uh, it, it needs to happen. And when we think about resources for students, 
you know, we often don't think about, you know, their scholarships and yes, we need more money for scholarships so that we do become a more inclusive university. We also need funding uh, for students for things like study abroad. Everybody doesn't have that money up front to pay for all the things that need to be paid for before you even go abroad. Um, a domestic trip, like FAM took students last year to DC. Well, that money has to come from somewhere. The students are gonna be staying in hotels. We gotta have a bus to get them there. All of that makes a difference. Uh, helping students purchase books. Books are extremely expensive. So how do you reduce the stress of students who are in many cases vulnerable because they're having multiple tasks. They're, ha they're having to think about financially, how am I gonna make it this semester or next semester? And so how can we relieve that stress so that they can focus on academics, so that they can focus on uh, going to a lecture and engaging in someone coming to campus they may never meet again, but who sends them in a, in a positive direction. Those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. And I think that's what this will, will certainly, this mission will certainly allow us to do is to help, help students uh, in, in all classes, but certainly those students who are most, uh, most in need of this kind of help. I love it. Well, thank you so, so, so much. I know that you mentioned that you will be donating, and so that means so much. But also just um, if you could please uh, spread this podcast is on on your social networks or with your community, that would also be great because although money helps tremendously, also um, spreading and outreach can do wonders as well. But thank you so much for dropping such great insight. Um, if you have any last words of advice for the two students online, but also the viewers that are outside, what would you like for everyone to know? My advice would only be that we keep this momentum going. Uh, that we, whatever corner you find yourself in, that you, that you make a difference, uh, that you make a difference for not only yourself, but for someone else. And, and that I think will get us to that, you know, that Carolina Creed that we talk about. It will get us to what MLK called the beloved community. And that, that for us is not just campus, that's a much larger uh, society. And, and so I, I think if we just keep those things in mind, always, and let our actions speak louder than our words, I think we'll be fine. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Littlefield, for coming on early and talking with us for a little while. I know we greatly appreciate it. Um, and I can let Aiden speak, but thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. It's great to meet you. I will you know, definitely network with you going forward and uh, get to pick your brain some more about African-American studies and just all that you've been a part of. But thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you both. And please keep up the good work. Thank you.